Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. And you are here in week two of a three-week series called Blessed, Broken, and Given. And I'm going to give you a little behind-the-scenes peek, which will make the most sense for those of you um, who are around a little bit. Our associate pastor, Sam Tinkin, isn't here this morning. Um, He is actually preaching in Uptown. The the pastor there was sick, and I just said, well, Sam preached a great sermon last week, I'm just saying. And so they tapped him on the shoulder, and he is there this morning. But... um, behind the scenes a little bit on this series. This actually stemmed from a sermon that Sam preached last fall. Those of you who were here, we did a Taste and See series about embodied worship with some solid body theology. We were trying to do it like an integrated look at our worship with our whole selves. And during that series, he preached on uh, communion, what we call the Lord's Supper, this table that we come to. Um, And he looked at that briefly in his one sermon from various angles, whether we call this the Lord's Supper, communion, or the Eucharist. And it's all about the depth and beauty of this act in the life of the church that we do together. And it was clear in that sermon that this is a passion area of his. And so after hearing him preach that last year, I said to him, you should flush that out and make it its own series. I can tell how much you care about it. And so he crafted this three-week series and then handed it back to me and said, what would you like to preach from this? And I said, communion. And so where we are today is the intersection of Sam's and my passion areas. So his communion series and my passion for this concept of the communion facet of the Lord's table that we're going to talk about today. So that's where we are today. So again, the series is called Blessed, Broken, and Given, and that comes right from scripture where we read that Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. And then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it. All of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. A fascinating thing, and we like to take note of this when this happens, because it's not that often. All four Gospels record this meal. So the Gospels, there are four of them in the New Testament, is actually how the New Testament starts. Gospels are another word for accounts of the, the life and ministry, earthly ministry of Jesus while he was here through his ascension. So that, that's what a Gospel is. And four different people wrote a recorded um, account of that period of time all four of them recount this same meal and it was just before Jesus's crucifixion during the week of Passover which is a festival that Jewish people celebrate still today and it was uh, just before the crucifixion this meal was shared and that moment was when he became Jesus himself became the sacrificial lamb like they celebrated it every Passover this liberation of the people of God from slavery in Egypt and how they were uh, the Passover was a moment of celebrating that liberation and now Jesus is going to become that sacrificial lamb and offer a new kind of liberation for the people of God. I love in the Gospel of John, John's kind of our poet, right, of the four Gospel writers. I love how John frames this meal. He says this in John 13, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, 
He loved them to the end. That's how John describes what's happening in this meal moment. This blessed, broken, and given meal is Jesus loving them and us through the end. That's what this is. And the church, capital C Church, across time, across denominations, across geography, has celebrated this meal ever since. It is truly a cornerstone of the Christian faith. So last week, Sam talked about the idea of embodied remembrance, this act as a remembrance every single week of Christ as our sacrificial Passover lamb, our liberator. We remember with, with taste, with touch, with bodily engagement, engaging in this remembrance every week because of how important that moment is, was, and is. Now, of course, that's beautiful, this embodied remembrance, but we do run a risk when we do something every single week, don't we? It becomes rote. And that's just another way of saying, like, we don't even think of it because it's like muscle memory, right? We just do it all the time, and it's so memorized in our body and our core that it just becomes a thing that we do, like brushing your teeth. Do you ever go to bed and think, like, did I brush my teeth? I do it every day. Like, did I, you know that one thing you do every day? And you have to, it becomes just such a thing you do. You don't even engage in it. You don't engage in the richness every single time of this table because it can become rote. I'm not saying it is, but it can become. So this week, I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about what it is that we take for granted and go through the motions because we do this so often. And so that's what I want to talk about a little bit. Now, I want to start with this. This is a little bit weird, but it's okay. I just, I like some weird parts about history, right? This was so not rote in the life of the early church, you guys. This was downright controversial stuff. This stuff, I'm gonna like spill the tea here. In the early church, pretend we were in the early church. Jesus is recorded as saying about this bread and cup, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. That's John 6, 55. And he says in the gospel accounts, this is my body, eat it. This is my blood, drink it. You guys in the early church, the Christians were accused of being cannibals. They were teased, like in the market square and stuff because of this language. Like, what are you, like a group of cannibals or something talking like that? They were teased by their critics. I mean, clearly it wasn't true, but you can tell that that language was really like risque for sure to be talking about that kind of language, but that was the deal. Like it was shocking language because it was a shocking truth. This is God's self giving God's self up as a sacrifice. It needed to be shocking, but that language was the source of teasing. And in another little bit of gossip from early church life, this one we'll read a second from John 13 again at this account of the Lord's Supper in John 13. A new command I give you, Jesus says, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, my followers, if you love one another. So there's all this love talk in the Christian community, right? And then they're living it out, like in the reading that Jade gave us from the book of Acts. Breaking bread is linked to how they were showing this mutual love for each other. That kind of love in the Bible is in the Greek language is agape. It's love in action. It's not romantic. It's not sexual love. It's, it's like the love in action that you have for one another. And so because this is agape love, people were calling this an agape feast. They had a meal linked to it and then took the elements, but they would, uh, people around them, 
kingdom. I'm still in gossip mode, right? They would hear about this agape feast, plus the Christian communities were using all this family talk about now being brothers and sisters at an agape feast, and everyone's like, what is up? That sounds super sketchy and a little racy. Even in the church in Corinth, which did some really racy practices in their own worship to the temple of Artemis and stuff like that. You guys, people were mocking Christians for a love feast and being cannibals. This was the source of controversy and teasing and scandal. And for us, it can become so rote. The purity culture, folks, by the way, in like Christian circles, when I think about what must have been said in those days about an agape feast, like they would have been blushing. Of course, there was nothing like bad going on. But I just think like, you guys, if we were the early church, we would be mocked and this would be the stuff of controversy. And we just, we just engage in it without even thinking of some of these things, of course. So anyway, the agape feast used to be a full whole meal and the Eucharist moment, the bread and cup was a part of that, but it was a part of a greater meal that was shared. And at some point, church historians believe because of potentially like misuses of that or just a scandal or whatever else the two eventually became separated at different times but for a large part of the early church this was one agape feast and we're going to circle back to an example in the new test new testament of an agape feast but the third thing i want to say about like the controversy and the wildness of this feast um I actually think the third thing more so than the, the, the gossip stuff. I, this was so controversial, you guys, that in the history of the church, this has been, in my, in my estimation, one of the m biggest fracturing elements of our church history. It is controversial to the point that if you look at our family tree as a capital C church, this is one of the things that has fragmented us the most, caused denominational splits, caused um, uh, fracturing within families, uh, within communities, was over how we engage with what's going on at the Lord's table. And we know at the end of the day, the fact is there's a huge element of mystery that happens here. Sam got into that more last week, so I won't belabor his point. But I do wanna share with you just a little tidbit. If you're not, if you're new to church, this might seem like this is just like this thing you guys do with like bread and wine, I don't get it. But the thing is, is that people take this incredibly seriously and there's different trains of thoughts about what's happening in the mystery and how we articulate this. I'm gonna do this really fast. There will not be a quiz on this. So allow it to skim over if you don't care. You're fine, you're welcome here to not care. So really quickly, some of the big main views that exist about what is happening here at the table. And again, this sounds just like stuff from a textbook, but like denominations, communities, families split over beliefs in this moment. There is one view that's held by the Roman Catholic Church called transubstantiation, which in this view really is saying that in, by some mystery in the moment of receiving communion or preparing for communion, that the bread and wine literally transforms into the body and the blood of Christ. So then some people split from that, led by Luther, into something that's later called consubstantiation, which they would not they don't like that term, which is fine. Um, somebody else called it that. I don't know. Don't ask me. But they said, no, 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 it's not actually transforming. It's that um, the physical identities, the real presence of Christ's body and blood coexist with these elements in a mysterious way during communion. So that's like a coexist, literally 
coexisting, not literally same kind of a viewpoint. And then this guy named Zwingli, who I don't think got enough credit. He had a lot of big thoughts. We don't hear his name enough. That doesn't matter. Came up with memor uh, 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 an idea that was later called memorialism, which swung the pendulum all the way over to say, like, you guys, this is just symbolic. It is mere symbols designed to commemorate what happened. And so that was in, in response to those other uh, more literal approaches. And then Calvin came along with what later was called the reform view that says that there is a spiritual presence of Christ in the elements as well as commemorative purposes of the sacraments. Okay, that's enough school talk. The point is that there are big views and like a kajillion in between these on how to articulate what's happening at the table, what's happening in communion. Here's how I would summarize what we practice here. We hold communion as a sacred sacrament of the church initiated directly by Christ. We therefore partake in the bread and cup as the body and blood of Christ regularly in our gatherings. In this sacrament of communion, we experience the spiritual presence of Christ in our midst. And here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we articulated it right. I'm just saying that's where we kind of are. And you're welcome to be here and disagree with that. We are okay with that. I don't think that any one person can get the language or the mystery of what's happening exactly right. I just, I don't think that we can. I I'm okay with that. I'm okay with coming to the edge of mystery. And so we can be at this table and have different views because this does involve a mystery of our faith in Christ. We follow that Christ said to do this thing, partake in this action without um, being able to fully land on what it all encompasses. But why am I bringing this up? Oh, I, by the way, I think Augustine probably is my favorite. Uh, Sam said this last week, that the sacraments, which we hold to be baptism and communion, uh, communion, sacraments are the visible signs of invisible grace. There's something going on we don't understand, but these are tactile, visible signs of God's presence in here. Why am I geeking out on history and stuff like that. I find this to be a great irony in the life of the church. What was meant to bring together, what was meant to unite, to bring into unity around Christ and around one another has been one of the main threads of division in the history of the church. One of the biggest threads of division, ironically, was what Christ instituted to bring us together in him and with each other. So whatever we believe about the elements of the table, that part of our history, I think, is allowed to make us sad. We don't need to judge it. We don't need to say they do it right and we do it right or you do it wrong or whatever. Like, you don't need to say any of that. You can have your beliefs. But, like, I believe that we should sit in the splits that have happened and be willing to say, like, wow, that's, that's really sad when something like that has caused division because what it is meant to do is bring together. So I want to focus on the part, first we're just going to allow that to be sad, but I want to focus on the part that I love about this facet of communion at the Lord's table. The part of communion that represents participation. The part that is more about what unites than what divides, right? And the part I love is participation. So I love that it even backs up and it has to do with our participation and even equipping the table for 
a hospitality moment, right? So there are our team members of our hospitality team who literally come early to spread the table, to put out the elements. During this communion series, I usually buy our bread at Jewel on Sunday mornings before I come. But during this series, we're baking our bread. Like I baked yesterday in order to feel that moment of the kneading of the dough and all of that. And we're taking turns baking the bread to feel that engagement in the very act of creating the communion table. I love how Makoto Fujimura, he's an artist and theologian, in this great book that he wrote called Art and Faith, he says it this way, the Eucharist relies on us to be culture makers. Bread and wine are both realities that would not exist on their own, but earthly materials must be cultivated by human beings and require much time to create. God, for some mysterious reason, waits upon human making and chose to use our ability to make bread and wine to reveal Jesus's resurrected presence known at the table of the Eucharist. You guys, Jesus could have initiated an action that involved uh, grapes and grain, but he didn't. He initiated this with something that engaged us in our participation right, right from the beginning. Why does that matter to me? I think it's a signpost towards the greater participation that happens at the communion table. And that's what I want to look at. I want to look at this moment in the life of the church as participation on two levels. And we're going to go to that case study of the Agape Love Feast that I was talking about in the, as we read about it in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. So we're going to use them as a case study. The first part of communion represents and fosters our communion or participation with Christ. And I would even say in Christ. So let's talk about that first. Our participation with Christ. In the city of Corinth, there was a big temple that was there, and the city was in the shadow of this temple, and uh, food would go and be offered to the goddess of the temple, and then would be sold in the market. And this was a huge, confusing moment in the life of the early church, because we were Jews and Gentiles together, trying to figure out how to live this out. People were buying food that was sacrificed to idols and eating it, and some people were like, that is idolatry, and others were like, it's just food, man. And they were fighting, and it was a big deal. It was a big deal to them and hard for us to understand, but that's the scene that this is all taking place. So um, we're worried about people falling back into idolatry, or are we saying we're free from all of that in Christ? It is allowed to just be food because we don't believe in the sacrifice that happened. Okay, Paul is addressing that community in his letter to the Corinthians that we now call 1 Corinthians. He reminds them that when with whom we are participating when we're doing, when we're eating this bread and drinking this cup. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10, starting in 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? So Paul's language goes beyond that we're participating with. Paul loves to say we are in Christ. Do you remember our series in Ephesians? Again and again, our position is actually in Christ. It's beyond with. But this, uh, this idea, because of Christ's sacrifice, God's Son offering His self as a sacrifice to bridge the gap between the holy and the broken, only God's self can do that. Now, that realization that God's self did that kind of bridge building, that is foundational to our faith. If you are just checking out God, that's like a big deal part of what's happening and why we talk about loving Jesus. Because 
Christ's self, God's self, did something that nothing else could do by being the bridge between uh, the broken and the holy. So that's the peace that now brings us, when we call Jesus Lord, into participation in Christ. And so that is the huge and foundational first piece. For those of you who've been in church a while, this is like nothing new, Melissa. We know this part, but not everybody knows. That's the first piece. We participate in Christ every time we come to the table. Okay, we know that. But I believe communities can sometimes miss the necessary outpouring of that foundational truth. And so Paul goes on in that same passage to say this, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body because we share one loaf. And this gets us to the second point about communion as participation. Communion represents and fosters our communion or participation with Christ's body, the church, the historical church through time, the global church across boundaries, and our little expression here, who made it out on a three-day weekend of Marathon Sunday, this little expression here, this unites us as well. And so back to our case study in the Agape agape feast that was happening in Corinth. So usually when we um, take communion here, receive communion here, we usually read actually out of this letter. This will sound familiar. In 1 Corinthians 11, you know this passage we read, for I receive from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, he broke it. You guys remember that? Most weeks we read that passage, right? So that passage that we read as a remembrance when we come forward is stern correction in its original context. Paul is writing to the church and being like, cut it out. You're not doing it right. And this is not God honoring. So we don't usually get that tone when we're just reading that part of the passage. So what we're going to do is look at what Paul was checking what he was correcting in its first con, uh, concept communion was participation in the whole body of Christ like the one loaf represented something important and the church in Corinth was getting this part wrong right and I think a lot of church communities today can lose sight of this part here's what he's correcting I'm going to back up a couple of verses. He's saying this. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Skipping a few verses. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. And he goes on to say, this is how you do it right. For I give to you, received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. So he is correcting what is going wrong. What's going wrong? At their agape feasts, the people with means have full bellies and lots of wine. And those without means are going hungry. This is a division based on rich versus poor within the local body of Christ. And it is clearly evident at their agape feasts, their love feasts, that this is happening, and it should not be so in the body of Christ. So this division caused what Paul calls receiving communion. He says you're receiving it in an unworthy manner when there's divisions like that. He says it's actually sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. It's actually sinning to have those kind of divisions. And so we look to the New Testament and say, okay, we see this as a theme. How does the New Testament again and again, because of following the way of Jesus, how do they counter the divisive narrative of things like rich versus poor, right? Or uh, slave versus free, male versus female, Jew versus Gentile, all the us versus thems that would categorize and 
elevate certain people over and against another people group. The New Testament time and again says in the way of Jesus, there is no room for that whatsoever. And I love the language used in the original Greek to counter that us versus them mentality of divisiveness within the body of Christ. One of my favorite Greek terms, it's koinonia, which we translate to fellowship. But in the original language, calling people to this koinonia, a bond together, there is a huge emphasis on the concept of participation. So when we read fellowship, we think like community, right? A fellowship of believers, that group of people. And we kind of make it as a group. But koinonia was participation language. The early communities became fellowship of the Spirit, united with God through Christ, which is first. Corinthians 1 9 and in because they are koinoniaed with Christ I made that up there's no past tense koinoniaed but because they're koinoniaed with Christ they are through the spirit necessarily in koinonia with one another it's it's necessary it can't be undone you've been koinoniaed with Christ you are koinoniaed with one another and there's a participation that is necessary in that kind of life together And that's why we take communion or receive communion the way that we do. We want it to be participatory. There will be somebody who rips the bread and hands it to you. They will speak over you a truth. This is because we want a participation, not not an individual encounter with Christ. We want it to be participatory, how we remember every single week what is happening at this table. So Gordon Fee has such beautiful language around all of this uh, that's taught me so much. I'll just grab this little nugget. God is not just saving individuals and preparing them for heaven. Rather, he is creating a people among whom he can live and who in their life together will reproduce God's life and character. That's the living witness that draws people to see the very life and character of God. So in their life together, empowered by the Spirit, gifted as a sacred, mysterious communion with Christ, that brings them to to participate with one another and with Christ as one body. And I would argue that that's something worth fighting for to be true across history and geography, and that requires theological grace. Going back to that little bit of a scholarly moment with those big words that I can't even sometimes say right. Like, we need theological grace to face that disagreement with with a sense of unity and participation above all. And I believe in certain topics, theological grace is very doable. If we're talking about participation with one another, there's room for disagreement. It's okay to not land in the same place. That can happen, but we have to fight for that. So it's true in big ways across history and across boundaries, yes, but it's also true in gritty real-life ways in this community of people where our lives rub up against each other and sometimes we hurt each other or we just miss something with each other and so it, it it's in like big theological ways and it's in like really gritty real life ways that we can live out this sense of what does it mean with communion as participation in unity so all this beautiful language needs to be lived out in real frustrating gritty holy ways with one another and so Paul says because a reminder of this Paul would say examine yourself before you come to this participatory table 
Because in every act of participating in this one loaf, one cup, it's communion and participation in Christ and in his body. So make sure you're coming from a place of um, like right-heartedness. Do you know what I mean? Like be, just check yourself and see, if, are, are, we, are we going for participation and unity through history, across nations, and right here in this people, this body? And so this right here, what we do is koinonia fellowship and participation. That's the piece about communion that I really, really love and I know can get rote, but I want, I want us to remember that every week. When we taste that, we say like, what, what does this mean for me in my real life with other people trying to follow the way of Jesus and people who don't know about the way of Jesus? How do they see our life together, our agape feast, and see and experience the goodness of God by witnessing that? And so that takes us back uh, to our reading from earlier this morning and why I uh, I chose that passage from the early church that Jade read. When we talk about breaking the bread, listening to that, listen to that passage again, focus on the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the real life participation in this early church's love feast uh, symbolized in the breaking of bread because it was marked by a mutual care that was extravagant and noteworthy to the world around them that did not know the way of Jesus. It was mutual care in a way that people were taking note and experiencing the very presence and character of God through the posture of mutual care of the early church. I think that's remarkable. Our case study that we looked at from the church in Corinth, I think that's what Paul was suggesting was missing in that church experience. They were experiencing dividedness over socioeconomic status in that church. And he was remembering the early church that was reflected in the book of Acts, which he knew. Paul was in that piece of the story, right? He knew about that early church. And he knew instead of this divisiveness, what does it look like to actually experience mutual care, knowledge of each other's needs. They were united in prayer and around tables, and they were united because they even knew about one another's needs, physical, emotional, spiritual, all of it. I believe they knew all of it. It was interwoven as a part of their participatory communion. You can't separate those things in a group that's truly united in Christ with one another. And we've talked about this before, and I'm not going to belabor this point, but I'm going to acknowledge that's really hard in the city. We have to fight for points of intersection with one another. We don't live, I don't live very close to any of you that I know of. I'm not going to run into you in my grocery store, like maybe twice in the 20 years I've lived here have I run into somebody at Mariano's that I know from church. We should all sync up and go at the same time it'd be fun but you know what I mean like we don't run into each other we're not at the same kids soccer games like we don't it doesn't happen like it sometimes does in in a community that's life is so interwoven that they see each other all the time it's just our truth we're in a huge city we have to 
fight for points of intersection, but you guys, I say it is worth it to know and to be known and to not just answer the question on Sunday mornings only, how are you with a fine? Like we really want to know. You have to fight and choose to know and be known. People walk through these doors checking out church and feel like I don't belong. And it's because I don't know if you, we don't know that you have to be bold to be like, hey, I want to know and be known. You have to be bold to choose that because it doesn't happen as naturally in a huge city in our context as it does in other spaces. Okay, that was a little side, but you, like participatory communion, we have to fight for this, living in the culture and the time that we do. But I want to come back to this point this morning because we want to remember tangibly that broader uniting in fellowship that happens every time we receive communion. And what I mean by that is like, I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on belonging or anything. What I'm going to say is like my prayer for this morning, for this particular conversation was that we would be reminded every week when we come and take the elements, whatever church you're in, whatever denomination and the beliefs are on the table, like I give theological grace to that. I, whatever it is, when you come and you take of one loaf, remember the participatory nature of being not only in Christ, but in one body together with other people. Every time you take communion, what if, what if your mind could go from, I am in Christ. Thank you, Jesus. You've saved me. I'm in this body. Where would you use me? I am in this body. How am I a part of what you are doing, God, in the greater world? How can I be a part, because I'm in you, of what is happening with your kingdom in breaking. And I'm going to leave us with, with these quick thoughts, just because my goal is just that every week we would have that reminder, right? Like, what does this mean? How do I participate? But I'm going to leave you with two sweet ways that God highlighted this for me this week. And so um, outside of my study, outside of my sermon prep, God just kept on like kind of nudging this idea for me. And so I'm going to share two of those ways with you when I was not looking for them. In my personal devotional time in the morning, I try to do things that have nothing to do with what I'm studying on Sunday. I just, I do a couple different things. I read Bible, I use an app, and um, I am currently reading very slowly through um, Tozer's The Pursuit of God. And it just so happened that he brought up this one part where he says this, the cause of all our human miseries is a radical moral dislocation an upset in our relation to God and to each other. And he goes on and on to talk about, but like if you can summarize the breaking of what's happened um, in the garden or whatever, however you want to... uh, summarize the, the fall, the, the, the rupture of what God's intention was and what will be corrected in time to come. Whatever that was, it's an upset in our relation to God with each other. What if every single week we came forward to the table and said, like, this is our reminder of what was designed to be, what I will participate in now, and what I believe is yet to come in right relation with me, with God, and me, with one another. And that idea of coming against the rupture, I think is really beautiful. Like, it's, it's not only a powerful reminder, it's like a, um, it's like a spiritual stance of strength to say, I'm going to come against 
against, every time I come to this table, come against the rupture in our relation with God and with each other. Because of Christ, I can do that with boldness. And so that was one reminder that I thought was really beautiful to come to the communion that Christ established. And the second, I was listening to a podcast um, and a gentleman named Jimmy McGee, who's a leader of the impact movement, was, I'm going to paraphrase him because I wasn't writing, I was just listening. And he paraphrased this so beautifully. If one group isn't experiencing shalom, you aren't in a place of shalom. And I was like, that's the body of Christ language right there. If I come to the table and acknowledge, like, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, but I know that while one group isn't experiencing shalom, while any group isn't experiencing shalom, we don't have shalom. So um, I just feel like that is, is like a spiritual stance of strength. As we come to this table, that we would say, like, man, I am part of one loaf. I I am part of one body, Christ's body. I am a part, I'm in Christ through what he's done. And now how Christ would you use me as part of this body to be a part of your shalom movement, your kingdom inbreaking to the world around me. And that reminder every single week takes us into the glory of what Christ has given and beyond it to say like, and how would you use me, Lord, for your will to be done? on earth as it is in heaven. Um, God, I confess that um, my, my passion exceeded my eloquence this morning. Um, I can feel um, the frustration of having something heavy on my heart and having my, um, my mind not articulate it. And so I just ask you, Holy Spirit, since you're with us, we already know, we honor that truth. Um, just have your way with these words, with these songs, with this gathering, um, stir in us whatever it is that you would um, ignite in our hearts in response to this truth that Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took this bread and broke it and gave thanks and gave it to us and said, this is, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. And when we get to participate in the liberation of that Passover truth, um, we can't help but to respond out to the world around us in your name, King Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of the Father. Um, ignite in our hearts where you would have us respond today to the bigness, the holiness, the beauty, and the majesty of the truth that you've established at your table. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.